According to Nietzsche, there are two different types of people in the world. Those who want to know and those who want to believe. You have arrived at the crossroads of mind and matter. The Midnight Academy with Dr. Heather Lin. Michael Laflem is a researcher, adjunct professor of history and philosophy, columnist for New Dawn Magazine and Kennedy'sAndKing.com. He is also a scuba diver and guitarist. Michael grew up in South Florida and attended the Harriet L. Wilkes Honors College in Florida State University, where he studied Western intellectual history and U.S. foreign policy. Michael is also a book reviewer for Publishers Weekly and was a one-time research assistant for investigative journalist Whitney Webb while she was writing her best-selling two-part series, One Nation Under Blackmail. Michael's new book, Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy, is his second history book after 2008's The Spectre of Reason. More information about Michael LaFlem and his work can be found at www.michaellaflem.com. That's Michael, L-E-F-L-E-M.com. This episode of The Midnight Academy is sponsored by you, the audience. As we embark on this first season, we're refining our approach to deliver top-tier content and spark enriching conversations. By subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast, you're helping to foster a community of thinkers, dreamers, and explorers. For those seeking more, consider becoming a paid subscriber. Your financial support helps us deliver better quality content, insightful discussions, and bonus material, turning the Midnight Academy from a budding podcast into a groundbreaking platform and community where we bridge the gap between knowledge and belief. There are still many things that can be done to improve the quality of the show and your experience, so please visit our website to learn more about subscribing and stay tuned for more details in upcoming episodes. As the clock strikes midnight, our school bell tolls. Class at the Midnight Academy is now in session. Approach, and I would definitely recommend if anyone was trying to learn a little more about Atlantis, like I was, I, I couldn't recommend your book enough. Oh, well, thank you. That, that means a lot. And, you know, that's probably one of the main things I was trying to do with the book was, as you mentioned, told that line between, you know, a scientific approach, comprehensive approach, but also admitting perhaps things that conventional quote unquote books um, weren't so apt to take a look at, like esoteric information, channeled information, clairvoyant, clairaudient information, remote viewing, um, things which, you know, upon closer looking, um, closer inspection are absolutely scientific, just involving a paradigm that the general population doesn't believe exists. And so part of the book was, um, yeah, as you say, like a intellectual history or a historiography of how the topic has evolved through time um, from pre-Platonic sources up to the present and how the story has really informed cultures who have looked at that subject um, pretty much nonstop since it appeared on the scene really um, in its most dramatic form with, of course, Plato's two dialogues, Critias and Timaeus, but, um, you know, then how it evolved over time and, and how in the 19th century people started to seemingly start to get during the industrial revolution, these 
channeled messages about this past life. And to my great surprise, I mean, I didn't go into this really with any goal. In fact, I didn't even think I was going to write this, you know, I just was something I was interested in maybe eight, nine years ago. And after about six years of reading hundreds of books and taking notes just for myself, I decided, wait a minute, you know, you've got, you've got not only a book here, but you have an important bridge between what I ended up seeing, which was what you mentioned, this gap between the so-called skeptics or debunkers and the people who just presume that, well, everybody believes that, you know, clairaudience is true or clairvoyance is true and everything every channeler says is true. And I thought, well, there is actually a way to approach all of these subjects, you know, as objectively as I can and give them the credibility that they have, they, that they need. And I think that's why it took me so long, you know, was because achieving that tone of, I mean, I would never pretend to be impartial. I don't think anybody is. But achieving a tone of balance, you know, giving equal credibility to oceanographic records and channeled messages if they happen to uh, coincide. And to my great surprise, the majority of, for example, Edgar Casey's channeled material absolutely aligned with things he would never have been aware of in his own lifetime, which were later confirmed. So to me, you know, um, that's absolutely valid you know and um so what you know, what made you i mean because that's that was pretty pretty ballsy to do is like you know trying to put like this legit historiography out and then you had this like really great sort of all these sources like especially and i want you to get into that a little bit mm -hmm. how most people think that you know if they do think there's a historical precedence for atlantis they automatically go right to plato and they don't mm -hmm. necessarily look any further back um, which is quite interesting. And so you do such a great job of outlining um, sort of the entire scope of the, you know, written record or even the etymology of, of the word Atlantis. And uh, so once you get to a certain point, what sort of, you know, what was it that made you feel so compelled to add those channeling uh, sort of, you know, components in? Was it just that um, some of them were so compelling or was it just interesting or um, was it, just because of that renewed interest during, um, was it the, when would you say the renewed interest in Atlantis came about? Was that just Ignatius Donnelly, something we all sort of, we all, I'm like presuming the audience knows these things. So uh, we're going to try to unpack every, yes. every person like this. Um, so, uh, so apologies, uh, but, but maybe you can, you can just speak to that a little bit. Uh, what made you decide to include uh, that in the book, the sort of esoteric version sort of like, the, I don't want to call it the latter half, but it, you know, you did a nice chronology of it and it mm. does sort of fit in that latter half. Um, but um, why, why, why add the channeling component to it and not just stick to a historiography or a history? Sure. Well, and that's interesting. You mentioned um, Ignatius Donnelly, you know, author of the 1882 uh, classic, you know, the antediluvian world, which, you know, even to this day is an incredible, book given the information that man had and working out of the library of congress um what he achieved is incredible but um you know for me it really was i was coming up against this fact that 
you know, as you mentioned before, there is only so much data that can be gotten from conventional sources, you know, and to take Plato's account, you know, much more information is in that account than meets the eye, you know, and, and I'm always astounded that the average person, you know, writing for major magazines, um, just casually begins with, well, in the myth of Atlantis written by Plato, which immediately tells me they have not read the account even cursorily because the first line in, I forget if it's Timaeus or Critias, they both overlap, but the first line, and I believe it's Critias is as strange as this story sounds, Socrates, every word of it is true. And it's vouched for by Stolon, the wisest of the seven sages. So it's disclaimed at the beginning that this is not a myth. And if you really read it, it has no signs of any other type of Greek mythological writing. In a traditional myth, you wouldn't outline to the meter or circumscribe the dimensions of the canals. That would be irrelevant in a myth. Um, you wouldn't describe the types of materials used to plate certain portions of the temple. That that's not generally. I've never seen a myth that does that. So, it's an actual historical account, according to Plato, who people seem to think is you know quite reliable source in everything else he did. Uh, I wouldn't call him you know equivalent to like a blogger or somebody on a subreddit. Uh, you know, this is Plato. <laughs> but really, you know, as crazy as that account is, and as amazing as it is. Um, what really got me into the esoteric stuff was, I guess I'll tell it this way, you know, Plato's account, it's not a fantastical account. It's only fantastical in the sense that he's describing a place that no longer exists. But really, if you think about it, okay, he's writing in 360 BC. He's describing you know, extraordinary architecture, but it's not an impossible thing. He's just, he's describing a large circular city, a capital city on this island archipelago that's a military empire off, say, the coast of Portugal, roughly. Um, and I love when people will do anything in their wildest imagination to reinterpret the Pillars of Hercules for their own thesis when... I don't even want to get into that, but... <laughs> Well, so I have heard that, though, that, you know, there's all this uh, the pillars of Hercules. So let me let me just ask you this flat out. So do you know where Atlantis is? Would you say would you say that you know where Atlantis is? I would say absolutely. We all know where it is. And it's always been there. You know, you could go to my, my website. Spoiler alert. Go to the map at michaelleflam.com. Look at a map of the Atlantic Ocean with the water drained, what do you see that runs through the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? Okay, so I mean, let me ask you, have you been to Atlantis? No. Okay, so I ask that in all in, a, in jest, but I, I say that too, uh, just to uh, as an excuse to bring up a story. I was uh, at a conference, one of these ancient mystery conferences years mm -hmm. ago, and there was a speaker there who had written a book on Atlantis mm -hmm. and uh, had a presentation and they said they had gone diving and these were the pictures and it was like uh -huh. the whole like thesis of their thing. And the pictures were beautiful, like underground, you know, ruins and whatnot. And it was mm -hmm. the, um, 
Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas. I've been there many times. Yeah. <laughs> and the poor audience was like, wow. And so that always yeah. like made me laugh because I thought, oh, no, you're telling your spell. Oh. Yeah. Matter of fact, <laughs> I've, a matter of fact, um, I've, I was there on the grand opening, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, because okay. my family's from the Bahamas. So I went oh, from cool. Florida to go. They're from that island. They're from Nassau. So I went to see my dad and. Yeah, I saw the Atlantis. So you I did actually, do you, I think I read in your yeah. bio, you do snorkeling? Scuba diving, yeah. Scuba diving. Okay. Yeah, since, so... I was, since that year, same year, 99. I've been scuba diving since 99. So, but, so um, do you think that's part of the reason you got interested in Atlantis? The whole, no, like, diving? not at all. Oh, no. okay. I actually, when I went to the Atlantis Resort, I mean, I was aware, like most people, of the, the word, but I don't think I had read uh plato's dialogues or anything like right. that you know uh, i just thought it was a cool hotel and um trying to go back it looks there, cool actually, it looks really cool amazing place yeah yeah so uh, I'm, I'm glad but... atlantis um, <laughs> I, well, i'm just know, so I'm, I'm, it, I'm just glad that uh you're not um saying you've been there like some people have and that's something i want to point no, out i mean there's so much snake oil kind of thing in this sort of genre especially when it yeah. comes to atlantis right that uh it's really again it's refreshing to have a book that um you know well, kind I'll of goes over it in a in a more academic way. I I'll tell you this. Uh, I'll tell you this because you can you can get on a charter flight right now and go to Atlantis. You know, you just take a flight to the Azores and you're on the mountains of Atlantis, as I understand it. Because the thing is, um, you know, if you take Edgar Casey, who we can get into briefly, if you take just for to jump ahead, then we can go back as to why I think he's one of the most important. Sources. But if you take his timeline, can you explain for the like, who who is Edgar Casey? I know, I know. Yeah, Edgar um, Casey. Um, <clears throat> Edgar Casey's a fascinating person. He was a person who, you know, was born in the late eighteen hundreds and around nineteen hundred. Actually, um, he lost his voice. He was just a man living in uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, regular guy, and you know, he always claimed to be able to kind of have strange sixth sense when he was a kid. He used to tell his mom, you know, the usual things. I can see auras. I can see disincarnate beings, a thing. And people were, you know, his parents were like devout Christian, devout Southern Baptist. Or, you know, Edgar, be quiet. Mm-hmm. And so he lost his voice um, due to a severe case of meningitis. And a friend of his said, hey, you know, there's this guy, this hypnotist who's coming to the Hopkinsville Opera House. You should go ask him to hypnotize you and see if you can get rid of this because his voice had been gone for months and he couldn't work. And it worked. And in doing that, he discovered that he had the ability to go into deep hypnagogic trance, which is the deepest form of trance, akin to a coma, actually. And eventually... um, he began through a different hypnotist who kind of fully cured him because the first guy couldn't. But the second hypnotist, this guy, Al Lane, said, Edgar, you have a gift and I'm going to promote you and let's see if you can do some healing work and help people. So he would regress himself or put himself in a hypnagogic trance on a couch and basically remote view people's illnesses and prescribe strange naturopathic met remedies um, and treatments that actually help thousands of people. And in doing so, he did this for the next 40 years until 1945 when he died. 
at the age of 65 and he was doing like seven readings a day mm-hmm. had a stroke um but he started... i think i read somewhere was some of this uh, uh studied by a university I, I thought i read that somewhere am i incorrect or yeah actually matter of fact um there's a there's an archive um we actually just got the book accepted today believe it or not um, oh wow the edgar case the advanced this is called this the are the center for advanced research and enlightenment and it's his it's a library in virginia beach where his house used to be um in the same city as this where his house used to be and it's an archive of all of his readings and a bunch of books and personal items and stuff and um yeah it's like a site dedicated and then there's atlantic university which i think is connected to that and they teach courses on like some of his remedies and stuff and even the mainstream medical establishment credits him as the father of holistic medicine because he understood how the body works as a system you know and it's an interesting kind of side story because he was uh, a victim like many people of that whole rockefeller medicine Mm. of the 19 you know 10s 20s 30s where the pharmaceutical industry was banning anybody from doing holistic practices unless they had an uh, American Medical Association license so he went to jail for being a fortune teller and a oh, quack wow. and all this okay. yeah so you know so it was a real that was like 90% of his life was just giving medical readings um but he occasionally would give past life readings because he could tap into this source of infinite accurate knowledge um and during these past life readings, sometimes they would be in ancient Rome or Greece or, you know, prosaic timelines where people, oh, that's cool. I was a gladiator. I was a farmer in medieval France. But they started to get weirder because eventually he would regress you far enough. And a lot of his clients, he would say, you had an experience in the Atlantean land. They would say, what? Atlantis. <laughs> They're like, I was, me? yeah, I was following you until you said that. And then sometimes he would give dates, you know, and eventually enough people got together who, who heard about this phenomenon. This was in the 1930s and 20s um, that they put together two or three sessions where they basically said, look, we are just going to grill this guy on this subject the whole time. OK, and they prepared like a whole study group of questions. Um, and that's where the majority of these really detailed, bizarre, um, readings come out that are so strange to the average person, but that actually corroborated by hard evidence. And I think that's what the book showed was, you know, these dates he gave, um, you know, for example, he says that the first destruction of the continent of Atlantis, which again, where is it? Look at the map on my website. What's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? We call it the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and the Continental Shelf. But there's a giant continent underwater in the Mid-Atlantic, you know? It's just underwater. And I'm not saying there it is. I'm just saying when people say there's nothing, it disappeared. It's like, no, contours change, geography changes. And we can get to your question in a minute. But he said, look, at the beginning... The entire geography of the world was different. You know, half of North America was submerged. The other half was under a two-mile ice sheet. This is during the Ice Age. And he's saying, 
the first destruction actually occurred. He's giving this reading to a guy. He says, you were present at the first destruction. I says, what? He says, so yeah, this you guy, what? So this guy came in like, you know, yes. hey, you know, I got like arthritis. You know, can you get a little like, was he just there for some reading or was he a He was there or? for, a, he was there, I believe, for a past life reading. Yeah, oh, okay. Um, and he would try to tell you like what you should learn from this experience. So you grow oh. as a person. Um, he never just gave information for nothing. He would always, he would tell you details, but then he would say, and learn from this experience. So with this guy, he says, you were present at the first breakup of what was then a enormous continent that stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to basically the coast of Western Europe. And the guy said, okay, what was my name? He said, and many times the names were very strange. But in this case, he says, your name was Tim, T-I-M. And he says, okay, what was I doing? He says, well, you were an emissary during the time of the great Congress. He says, what? There's not supposed to be civilization in this time because the guy said, well, hold on a minute. What time was this? He says, 50,722 BC. Wow. The guy said, so what was the great Congress? He says, well, the earth was being overrun by an animal menace, which if you think about it is accurate. It's the megafauna that roam the earth. Okay. So we Very know dangerous ones. There yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that there were megafauna then. Okay. And he says the peoples of the world, not just the peoples of the Atlantean continent, but the peoples of the world, there were other civilizations got together in balloons, or he calls them zeppelins, that were made of the skins of dried elephant hides that themselves were powered by a crystal that entrained to metal on these craft and basically like some sort of steampunk thing. It was the first evolution of this technology. And he says these people all met in a central location. He doesn't say where. And they decided to use what he called the death ray and he says it was a stratospheric weapon that was beamed into volcanic flows in different parts of the earth in an attempt to kill the food supply of the megafauna and he says in doing so it fractured multiple tectonic plates and precipitated this crazy global um volcanic or super volcanic eruption that itself exacerbated and sped up a magnetic pole shift that had naturally been occurring. And he says it dramatically changed the climate. Everything got much colder and the entire continent was broken up into five islands. Now, as fantastic as that sounds, I'm looking wow. through the sounds records. Wild. It does. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely crazy. But I'm looking through the records and believe it or not, in the peer-reviewed journal of quaternary studies from last year, two years ago, there is a report where they say, you know, there is a bizarre megafaunal extinction spike at 50,000 BC that we can't really explain because it's there were not enough people to hunt this many people. There are these many animals to extinction, yeah. and yet we do have a record. Now, I'm not saying, there you go, <laughs> but... That's one of about 50 times things he said. 
in varying degrees of like specificity panned out, you know? And he said the second destruction was 22,000 years later in the year 28,000 BC when this crystal had become more powerful and then one of the guys who was giving a reading, he said, well, you were the central technician on one of the five remaining islands in charge of this crystal, the Tuoi stone. And he describes what it looks like. And I have a whole chapter on how it functioned because a scientist from NASA in the 1970s apparently found this reading and applied his PhD in NASA physics rocketry to this question. And he's like, this actually makes sense. And there's no way Edgar Cayce could have known that this machine functioned this way. But I'm a NASA physicist, and this machine would have functioned as described. And this thing overloaded, blew up, fractured the Earth's crust. What's like a repeating pattern? And now five became three islands until the final destruction around 10,000 BC, which is the story Plato told. So wow. that's why I give a long-winded answer, because when people say... Atlantis, they're talking about the five, the third destruction when it was three islands. And again, Plato said he's talking about the capital city on the island surrounded by other islands. He describes it as an archipelago that has access by way of this archipelago to the continent, which again, how is Plato aware of the American continent in 360 BC? before Columbus, that's not supposed to exist, and has dominion over the whole Mediterranean up to Egypt, that all of these are colonies. So I like when people say all the time, you know, oh, Ignatius Donnelly, he found evidence of Atlantis everywhere. Well, look at what Plato said. Plato said it was a, like England, there's the British Empire, and then there's the island of England. You know, it doesn't mean if you found a building in india that had english writing in a thousand years that that's england you know just like if you find evidence of atlantis in brazil or north america or yucatan or the pyrenees or egypt it doesn't mean you found atlantis but you found evidence of the atlantean culture from their central final island which edgar casey called poside which again is bizarre because in plato's version in the central capital temple is the temple of Poseidon. So mm -hmm. I think Plato was describing the island of Poseidon and the capital city of Poseidon, one of three islands. The other two, according to Casey, being Arion and Og. So it's kind of a, is why I don't really talk about it, you know, when I run into people at the bar or something, because <laughs> that's a very long-winded, boring story. <laughs> But it's important for your listeners because I see people all the time and, and, you know, no offense, but when I, when I see, uh, oh, we found Atlantis in North Africa because we see a circular depression and it's that, like, yeah, even that's... if that is indeed a man-made structure, and even if that were exactly what Plato was describing, that's not the whole story. You know, just like in his account, he's talking about the capital city. It's not like the whole civilization was in this circular city that I think people think sometimes that 
it was like a two mile long island with a circular city and everybody from Atlantis lived there and it was great and there were porpoises and mermaids and it's like well that's a good you know that's a good uh point uh when you say Atlantis a lot of times I would imagine due to popular culture you think Aquaman mermaids all of this sort of thing and I really think that's done a, a huge disservice uh to the actual study of the topic of um you know and so immediately like you said if you're going if you're in a bar and you're like hey you know I just wrote a book and they're like hey what about Atlantis they're gonna no, think, I don't oh, tell anybody oh no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know because they're gonna say oh yeah you know like Gills Aquaman or whatever and yeah well like, and then oh. if they if they well, it depends if I'm yeah, how many drinks I've had but if they really <laughs> want to push me i'd go where do you think aquaman comes from you know maybe from poseidon i don't know which came first the myth of poseidon and atlantis or aquaman you know where does superman come from you know again all of these things even you know all the creators will tell you all these universes marvel dc they're all based on basically western mythology there's nothing new they just change the names and put different costumes it's just the greek gods reprised rebranded but yeah, you're right. Um, you know, and it's also, it's, it's one of those things that it's like any topic that's not, you know, agreed upon on mass it's nuanced. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when you don't have a ready-made answer, cause I told that version that I skipped about 10 different things in that timeline, because I know in the interest of time, it's like, we don't have all month to go through them. And I would like people to read the book. Read but the book. <laughs> even, yeah. even at that length, you know, the average person that's one of these skeptics, it, they're not going to get to that point. They're just going to say, okay, so where is it? You know? And, you know, I would point them if people, like, if people really want to know, like, well, where is the damn thing? It's like, well, look at what Plato said. Look at a channeled sketch that a 17-year-old kid made in 1886 in his book, A Dweller on Two Planets, that he had no way of knowing what the ocean floor contours looked like from his cabin in Eureka, California. No map of the ocean floors existed in 1886 that was detailed, and yet he somehow traced an exact contour of a specific place in the Atlantic Ocean that... I show in the book. I overlay a satellite map from two years ago to his sketch, Bing. And it's a real place, and you could go there now. Now, are you going to find, uh, you know, uh, Poseidon's trident when you get there? Probably not. But people have found things that don't make any sense there, like giant underwater pyramid, uh, for example. Um, that's not supposed to be there. Um also, so, pyramidal structures on that landmass. You know? So let me let me throw this out here. Too. So you mentioned Atlantis maybe being more of a concept of an empire. Would that be fair to say that, that there was a, a central location and that there were other sort of uh, maybe a diffusion of the culture elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. If that's the case. So when people find these other sites that they claim to be the Atlantis, so like you mentioned the site in Africa, yeah. um, could that possibly be sort of a 
I don't know, remnants of, so like, say for instance, if you were looking for Roman culture and maybe you didn't know where Rome was, but you happened upon sort of Roman roads and arches and things like that in in the United Kingdom. And you might say, aha, you know, here's Rome, but we all know. So it would be something similar to that, perhaps. It's, it's exactly that. And, and in many ways, the, the Roman empire was in many ways, the continuation of the legacy of Atlantis, I would argue. But it's interesting because, yeah, people don't seem to think that's crazy, what you just said. Like, if you found a Roman arch in Tunisia, you wouldn't say, we found Rome. It's right. like, no, we found a Roman colony, you know, of Hippo or something like that. But you're right. I mean, Plato himself said, this isn't my opinion. Plato himself said the central island was located off basically in he literally he says in front directly in front of the pillars of hercules which you have to unless you're being one of these weird disingenuous people who those well they're the 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 pillars of hercules are in dayton ohio you know because i want it to be i've heard everything i get letters all the time from people uh mr lefwem you need to know that the pillars of hercules are really the baltic sea And I always tell them, pretend you're reading an account from something we all agree on and then try to explain that away again. You know, just change the word from Atlantis to Rome or something and just read it like that, like we do every other ancient source. And he clearly says that they come from an area from the true ocean beyond our inland sea which we think is an ocean, but it's really not. It's a constrained lake. And they entered from that choke point and attacked in force against the whole of the Mediterranean. So it's like, Hmm. it's pretty clear what he's talking about. It's very clear that he's talking about basically a region where the Azores are today. It's very clear. So you mentioned... You, yeah. you mentioned Solon's account, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of informing Plato about, uh, you know, I, I, let's, if you could t- maybe explain uh, how far back sort of it's proposed that the Atlantean culture itself uh, exists. I mean, you did mention, uh, you know, 50,000 years and this sort of thing, but in terms of any sort of historical record um, linked to civilizations, um, and and maybe I'm beating around the bush, but I think what I want to really get to uh, asking is, uh, you mentioned the Egyptians. Um, What about the Sumerians? Yeah, well, the Sumerians probably have the longest record on earth of recorded history, you know? in tablet form so it's you know and and again certain people have taken liberties with those translations and i know some people you know don't like to talk about that because they think um you know you're gonna have to basically go into like a make-believe timeline but you know i mean the some of the sumerian records stretch back basically in their words to times reaching into the 300 to 400,000 bc range where they're describing basically extraterrestrial intervention and seeding of the planet, you know, with Enki and Enlil and these things. Now we say, well, that's from the modern era and they're just describing mythology. But the Egyptians themselves have, for example, the Turin Kings list, which the document is at least from, say, 1200, 1250 BC from dynastic Egypt. 
and it's partially complete. But in that document, they talk about 10 Auletian or Auretian, however you want to describe it, kings who lived in the before time, Zeptepi, the time of the gods and then the demigods, which they say basically ended around 9,800 BC. Now, so those are the same the people that told Solon the story because he went to Egypt to get the story of ancient Greece as the first Athenian reformer. He wanted to know, we don't have records to go back that far. I'm going to go to Egypt. They keep longer records. And in this diplomatic you know, mission, they told him this story. That's how he said. And that story got to Plato through multiple generations about 200 years removed from that trip that Solon took. And in that story that Solon tells Plato, he puts that same date. He says, basically, it was 9,000 years before my time, which he lived around 560 BC, you know? So people put the date of the fall of Atlantis at 9,600 BC, because that's what the Egyptians told Solon. And that's what their own records say began the period of the demigods from the 10 Auletian kings who ruled in a foreign land. Mm. You know, so, and then then you've got Edgar Casey, who's an uneducated Sunday school teacher who, according to his entire family, in waking life had literally no recollection of any of the things he said and had never heard of or read Plato or wow. anything to do with Atlantis. And yet in Edgar Casey's timeline, he says a few hundred years before the final destruction. In the year 10,500 BC. He's giving this reading it's in 1932. Specific. In 1932 on a couch. He says in 10,500 BC. People had been warned. Through an interdimensional portal. By the beings from the other worlds. To prepare. And some of them went to. The Pyrenees Mountains. Where the Basque language. Which has no Indo-European etymology exists. To the Yucatan. Where you have towns like Atitlan, Aztlan, okay, that make no sense, and to Egypt, okay, to prepare for the coming destruction. And he says that was when the Great Pyramid was built in 10,490 BC. And then shortly thereafter, the cataclysm occurred. Now, that's exactly what the Egyptian records say about their king lineage, you know? Mm hmm. And it's in pre-dynastic times, except we look at it and say, gods, the gods, you know? Yeah. But it's like, these are Western Christian Orthodox labels that we're putting on something that that's not, it just could be interpreted as powerful rules. I mean, I couldn't agree more uh, in my book, The Anunnaki Connection. I sort of go into that idea about the Anunnaki themselves, uh, which it's sort of, you know, on one hand, people have enjoyed that interpretation. On the other, they are very upset um, because it sort of points more towards the direction of displaced people right. who initially, you know, came from a, a land that had been flooded or gone through some sort of catastrophe, sure. you know, and, and, and all of this and then traveled to Mesopotamia, where they encountered what they call the um, black-headed ones, kind mm -hmm. of indicating that they uh, ran across people who looked differently. I mean, if you have right. black hair and the others do, why would you, you know, have that as a signifier of difference? Right. So um, it indicates that they maybe were from elsewhere. There's a whole lot of other, you know, interesting things. But the, the point being that the idea that 
it doesn't stop there to to say, well, these people, these uh, you know, kings from other lands came and, and set up some sort of a, a civilization or whatnot. When you hear, if you look really deep into uh, what the tablets have to say, uh, there was a whole sort of other belief set that these visiting or, you know, these other people came with. So if if they're traveling, they had their own sort of gods and experiences. And if you then double down into that and look at the the earliest record of whatever they could have said about their gods from their so-called homeland uh, pre-flood... They talk about them being uh, semi-biological beings. Like they, they're very clear as to say that they are somehow biological, but somehow not. That they're right. sort of, and then they also call them. Uh, they have a group uh, that are known as the Seven Sages. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's very interesting those similarities where even as far back as you can go, these these people supposedly yeah. come down and you know uh, sort of bring agriculture or bring sciences or bring something um they say that they were taught these things by otherworldly entities that often can be described as being um you know some people say they're they're extraterrestrial some people say they're um from inside the earth some people sure. say they're um interdimensional i mean we have no way of all of the above knowing, right? yeah Del- dolores <laughs> cannon dolores cannon is explicit she says it's all of the above specifically with regard to to that question she says all of the above have come through in her sessions that she does where she regresses people and a source or something speaks through them and they've said all of the above so dolores cannon can you explain a little of who yeah it's a famous um hypnotherapist you know who who has basically created like a patentable way to regress people to heal past life trauma and a lot of times um her clients, you know, from the 90s and 2000s mainly, some from the 80s, but she's a more modern channeler. And I didn't focus on her too much because I wanted to focus on people that were the original people talking about it. Because anybody could say, well, right. perhaps, you know, you're subconsciously influenced, like maybe her clients at Red Edgar Cayce. So I wanted to go back to people who, who had no precedent. But yeah, I mean, she actually, I was just reading something of hers today from, um, one of her books, and she said that during the final destruction, some of these people, you know, went to these colonies, like former colonies of Atlantis, and basically just rebooted it after, like Egypt. Um, but also some of them left the Earth. Some of them went deep into chasms of the Earth and did their own breakaway thing, she said. Um, some came back, you know, that were away. Um, but again, it's it's one of those things that I don't make any explicit claim anywhere in the book of this is the actual truth. I just say, look, you know, like in my chapter of speculative fiction towards the end of the book, I, I say, look, here are five more explanations from different people of what was going on at the end, you know, and sometimes they're very similar. Sometimes they're very different, you know, um, and I just think it's good to look at all of it. And then eventually you get a sense that, okay, enough people seem to be saying that Egypt was an Atlantean reboot. And that's not just from channeled images or, you know, channeled sources. It's from Plato himself, you know, because where does the story of Atlantis originate? It doesn't originate from Greece, you know, and people should know that it originates from Egypt. So why would the Egyptians be the ones 
in command of that story that tell the Greeks, if they themselves didn't have a personal record, why would you know this? And so why would you have a list of Auletian or Auretian kings that come from the East that line up at the same time as the story they tell the Greeks? You know, that is so, fascinating. That that is something that was one of the most fascinating things I think I took away. Um, well, Ed, let me ask you this too. Uh, back to Edgar Casey a little bit. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I th what little I know about Edgar Casey again. So for the audience, yeah, I don't know a lot. Uh, this is why I'm trying to learn. I want to know more about Edgar Casey. One thing that I am pretty sure about is that he, um, for a brief moment, was uh, uh, into theosophy, and so. I, I sort of want to know your ideas on um, sort of the theosophical angle of that. Um, so if anyone isn't familiar in theosophy, there's uh, references to uh, the root races and they're, they're that whole kind of um, philosophy or mindset is uh, really Atlantean. There's a whole lot of references to Atlantis and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you could go a little bit into, um, you know, the theosophical view of uh Atlantis, the root races, so to speak. I yeah. know it gets on; it gets a little controversial in those um, well, in that know, way because of the wording with race and and this sort of implication, which yeah. has also led to a lot of people uh, shying away from talking about Atlantis or also getting a little bit of right. pushback. But um, so right. I would, yeah. So if you could speak to that too, sure. uh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. No, sure. Yeah, I'm from two root races, so I'm allowed. No, actually, that's not even <laughs> true. Because the actual term has nothing to do with ethnicity. Right. It's stages of evolution. So all races on Earth right now are part of, let's say, the fourth root race. Okay, if that makes sense. Black, mm -hmm. Asian, Caucasian, whatever, are part of the... It's really generation. It should be, you know, root generation. Um, so that West, theosophy is, is, a, is a, a philosophy, would you say, then from sort of the mid-1800s? And so their, right. their word, their use of the word race would be different than what we right. have. Just like Edgar Casey was not a racist, but he said the red race instead of Native American when mm -hmm. he was speaking with absolute respect about the Iroquois being the original Atlanteans. He said they were of the red race. You know, that's what he said. It doesn't mean he, you know saying there were those red skins those bastards he just said the red race because that's the world he came from and yeah. similarly with with you know helena blavatsky you know one of the original philosophists you know um when she's talking about the root races she's really talking about just the evolution of human consciousness throughout time from in her case like ancient lemuria up to you know the present 19th century um that she was so, writing it but yeah theosophy is really in my understanding i think it's just is the idea that human beings are you know divine beings cut off and kind of trapped here on earth and that we're trying to get back and we need esoteric means to do that you know and a lot of these people developed like rudolf steiner they developed kind of meditative states um not so much pure channeling but like meditative trances and things personally where they claim to get more windows into you know these these past lives and i touch on those people but again they, they don't have the track record of like diagnosing spinal fractures from across the country and then that person goes to the doctor and the doctor is like who told you you had a spinal fracture at that lumbar you know plexus and it's like 
I don't know, some man in Virginia that everybody says can do magic. <laughs> you know, and I'm, yeah. to show people how crazy that is, I spend probably 15 pages on all the doctors from Harvard, Stanford, Princeton that came to his house to specifically debunk him over a 30-year period. And they all left saying, we don't understand, but it's true. It's real. That That's what I found. can do this. That's that. That was something pretty interesting. Uh, you know? I really appreciate that you went over it like that because my my thoughts about Edgar Casey actually before reading your book was just that you know I had heard he was the sleeping prophet and you know I but I I had no idea that it was so well documented and that yeah. that's fascinating and it's we crazy. know that there's a lot of I mean clearly we live we live in a a, a strange world we don't know we're so limited by our perception and we're also limited by our technology and the tools that we have at any given time. And so I'm, right. I'm of the belief that so many things are possible. Um, and yeah. so it's, it, that was just really fascinating. So I'm going to have to do a, a deeper dive on Edgar Casey in general um, because of that. So yeah, if you want to putting me on that, <laughs> no, if you, if you want a book, um, read this book by a guy who was his apprentice, who I talk about in the book in the couple last couple years of his life, um, like from 1943, 44 to 45, he lived with Casey. And he later became a psychiatrist and wrote a book called A Seer Out of Season by Dr. Harmon Hartzell Bro. It's kind of a rare book, but that is an incredible window into a guy who came there as a full-blown atheist, skeptic, scientist from the University of Chicago whose wife in you know got an invitation because she was on Edgar Casey's mailing list and he's like my my new age wife wants me to go intern with this <laughs> weird weirdo and then the book is about his personal transformation because he's like he's like Edgar Casey would tell people where three objects were in a state in a tri-state area like there was a guy who needed a specific uh, colonic irrigation machine and Edgar Casey immediately said, there's one at this hospital, in this pharmacy, and at this storehouse, like El Paso, San Antonio, and then in this weird town. And wow. the guy, Harmon Bro, was sitting there listening, and he's like, this is just like BS, you know? He calls those places, and they said, how do you know we have that machine? We just got that machine. And he says, well, do you know there's two others in the state? They said, no, there's not. We're the only person in the state that has that machine. It just came out. And yet a guy knew that. And again, this is something he did 14,000 times. He gave over 14,000 of these readings from a trance. Um, and a doctor supervised him one time and said his trance is as near a near-death experience as can be sustained. And so when they brought him out of the trance, if they rushed it, he could actually die or have permanent brain damage. So how, yeah. so how did he go into these trances? Was this a self-induced thing? Yeah, he would sit oh. down on the couch and will himself into REM sleep. And then within mm -hmm. a couple minutes, five minutes or so, he would be in full REM sleep. And then a voice, a very mechanical voice would speak through him. Wow, okay. And explain. Wild. Yeah, and explain what needed to be done. And you could ask it questions up to a point. And if it sensed you were asking for the wrong reason, it would just let, cut it off and say, we're done here. I think that's, do you think that's similar to uh, sort of a, you know, people who have done particular hallucinogenic drugs describe similar states that 
you know, they get to where there's a voice, there's somebody that tells them things and teaches them things. And maybe I've never done hallucinogens. Everybody thinks I've done acid and ayahuasca. I had a friend who just did ayahuasca in Peru. He said it was, and he's done every hallucinogen. He said, I'll never do that again. It's too much. But, um, well, Casey said he has an explanation for what it is. And it's a super complicated explanation that, um, I think is like worth definitely reading that chapter for, cause it's, I wouldn't even want to paraphrase, it, you know, cause he explains it from the trance. Somebody asked him, who am I speaking to <laughs> exactly here? Like your, your, your voice, I hear Mr. Casey's voice, but who am I speaking to? And that answer is shocking what it tells him, you know, like. How do we know the, the level of sophistication in that answer? Mm -hmm. I mean, only a professional psychiatrist who has studied Carl Jung and Freud for 30 years would have the words to use. And yet an edge uneducated eighth grade level Sunday school teacher who literally only reads the Bible in the newspaper is using words like super consciousness and super ego and all these extremely technical terms that nobody could explain but when he was in a trance some thing or multiple sources were speaking through her how do we know he wasn't possessed well he was possessed by literally he was possessed by a being that was speaking through him but he he would say it wasn't like a b there's only one reading where he says like this is the archangel and gives a name mm -hmm. talking and he says everything else was just basically like a universal intelligence that's everywhere. It just sort of reminds me of, uh, you know, like a little bit of uh, the Enochian sort of John D. Edward Kelly, you know, because a lot of times there's been people through history that have claimed that they are sort of channeling or, you know, getting this information. And it's uh, it can drive somebody mad to wonder, is this a, a good source? Is this a bad source? You know, it can even cause arguments like a, in between those people you know in, the, in right. that time um how would you have that discernment to know that i mean apparently yeah. the 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 entity was uh, giving them good advice to help people and heal them so right. i mean that's one thing well and i'll tell you anytime somebody had bad intentions even if they the casey family because he usually did this with his wife or his son was present a lot of time um there was a case where somebody was asking about civil war treasure and they came to Casey and they said, um, they were like amateur explorers. And they're like, there's, there was a battle around here, around this town. And there's supposed to be a lot of gold. And so Casey goes in the trance and he says, yes, correct. He starts naming the officers that were in that battle. It, wow. I mean, unless you had researched this, nobody would know off. It wasn't like Gettysburg or something. It was an obscure ambush that nobody except these people really even were aware of because they were researching the Civil War. They were treasure hunters. And they he said, yes, this took place, this took place, but it's not where you think it is. It's like a mile down the road. And you're right, but the amount of money is much more than you think, and it's still all there for you to find. And so these people go there and they find like 
Civil War memorabilia. Like they find belt buckles, they find rifles, and they're like, oh my God, we found it. You know, but then they started digging and they couldn't find it. And they came back and Casey's like, no, you were there and I could tell you, but you know, and I know you're not going to use that for helping your community. Like you told me. So we're done here. Oh, so that's how they got him to sort of go in that direction. As I said, we're going to do something great with this and philanthropic and yeah, Mm. he did that to many people who were treasure hunters, Um, many, many people. And then some people who actually did use it for good things, they ended up finding the gold deposit or the silver deposit, like exactly at the inch level he told them it would be. So this wasn't just a guy who was a fortune teller. This was a guy who could locate mineral deposits, devices, and remote view and diagnose medical ailments with 99% accuracy. If you total all 14,000 readings, he had a 99% success rate, according to doctors who witnessed. Wow, that's that's unreal. So let me ask you this then too. Has he yeah, did Edgar Casey make any predictions that maybe we could still look for? I'm not trying to get like a, a dooms date or anything, but you know, um did he did he make any predictions about maybe things that would be going on in our contemporary yeah, day? He did, and he always had the disclaimer that, you know, they're just that, they're predictions. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are things that if you don't change from this time are more likely to happen, but nothing is set in stone. He would always say the first thing was they can always change. Take these very loosely. That's why he didn't give a lot of predictions. People always wanted predictions, and he's like, well, you want a better world, you can make a better world. But certain times, like, thresholds have been crossed. So, for example, before I answer your question, you know, he accurately knew all the Axis powers that would join forces for World War II seven years before the war started. Now, that's a very lucky guess because there is absolutely no clue that Imperial Japan and the Nazis would be fighting the United States. And I mean, in, in, in the 1930s, nobody knew Japan would... I'm a World War II historian by training. Nobody knew Japan would ally with the Nazi government in 1931, I believe, when he created this, you know. Hmm man from Austria will unite the German people and then they will fight with the Japanese and he said unless divine intervention is involved the whole world will be set on fire that's what his reading was and of course 80 million people died in those five years you know so he said basically like there are changes coming but they're not really like faded you know, so he would mention the earth changes and everybody always complains like, you know, he said things like around 1998, 99, there would be great changes in the earth. Um, but I don't think it necessarily means like just geographic, you know, or geological. It could just be like mental changes or technological. Yeah. Think about that. That's when the internet starts to become, you know, a thing yeah. and people can do what we're doing and Basically, trust in government starts to go down. I mean, that that to me is an enormous turning point. That yeah, that definitely was. Uh, and he's saying that from the twenties. He's saying in nineteen twenty that the year nineteen ninety eight will be a turning point in human civilization. You know, um, and that basically, like that next stage, um, is kind of just a a wilderness. You know, because he would always say that the Great Pyramid contained all timelines predicted within its actual structural fabric 
of human progress from the year 10,500, but it ended in 1998. That's what he said. That yeah. after that, they didn't know. It was like basically wild wilderness. Like you're in, you're on your own, you know? Well, well that is interesting. And it, it reminds me yeah. of it in the whole 2012 Mayan calendar thing that went down. And a lot of people were like, ah, nothing happened. But did it didn't like happen I know, right? I, I mean, it may look the same, but man, things were a lot different. In- a lot different. You know, it's so, it's so interesting you said that because if you just watch, like, anything that was recorded on video, YouTube clips, television, the news from, like, 2010, that's only 13 years ago, it looks like, to me, it looks like the consciousness of, like, the 80s or something compared to today it looks like something that if you played today people would just be like this person is lying or like this is so corny. Yeah. who would believe this but that was what we were in in 2010 yeah. you know what i mean yeah. so i agree yeah. with you like i remember 2012 2015 not like oh here comes a comet and right. being uh raptured into an alien spaceship but it's like i just remember thinking like like something is coming. I don't know what it is. And I think it was just a, I, I to use this word, but like a vibration or a frequency or something that was just like buzzing differently where I'm yeah. like, people are no longer playing the game the way they used to. That's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. There, there was sort of a game we were all playing. I think some people still are playing the game, uh, but more people are not. And I, well, I mean, take this for example, it, all the things we're speaking of now, um, mm. and just if you would have talked about this and say, I mean, people did talk about this, but there's just a change. There's so many things yeah, yeah. that, you know, if you would have been talking about, uh, say, in, in 1992. Oh, you know, my God. Oh, my gosh. It, it, they, it just some of these things that we're understanding now or, you know, even how the world works. Yeah, um, we don't listen to the evening news the same way. Like, oh, yeah, right. that's exactly how it went. I'm sure. Oh, I mean. Absolutely. And even it's really like, think about it. I mean, just take 2012 if you want, or take 2015 or just take the last 10 years. I mean, it's absolutely what you said. It's the erosion of trust in authority, which is, I mean, that is the fundamental across all cultures, across all languages, times. That is the fundamental unifying like concept that has been present for thousands of years in human history. Like we have never had a mass of people, billions of people that suddenly go, you know what? None of this makes sense. I mean, I can't think of a time where that was the case. And the way that people could communicate so rapidly now to spread those ideas and to, you know, it's, it's just, it is, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Right. So, and so you say he, he had all of these different predictions. Um, it sort of reminds me of, a you know, Nostradamus. They don't usually talk about Nostradamus yeah. anymore. Have you noticed that? It yeah, used to well, be a big thing, like, you know, no, read Dolores, read Dolores Cannon's book on Nostradamus. You might have a very I'm, different view. I'm going to that. That's there. my next thing. She claims he's the most accurate clerk. She, I mean, she studies clairvoyance and she would say he is the most accurate in his prediction. If you really sit there and look at what he was talking about, you know, through the poetic imagery of the quatrains and everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't really bring him up 
in the book because uh, to my knowledge he didn't have anything to say about uh, Atlanta you know he was more of like a futurist but yeah I mean it's it's something that you know another thing that's interesting too is like um, how different each uh, clairvoyant person was you know like Frederick Oliver the author of A Dweller on Two Planets which again was a name given to the book by his mother they well actually he wrote it in a line but his mother published the book around 1905 after he died you know it was just a series of notes in a kid's drawer in the California frontier but in this book I mean he has the most detailed account of what life in the 120th century BC Atlantis was in the year 11,160 and again he didn't go into a trance he claimed to hear voices in his head that told him words to write hmm. and he said sometimes they told me to write words backwards and he says one whole part of this book I was told to destroy because of the information it contained wow that's so you'll a- never see that because it was too much for you you know, it took him three years. And this is a real story. This is a kid from the age of 17 to 20 who every night would go home on the frontier in 1886 and describe the physics of how Atlantean holographic cell phone technology works. Now, think about what I just said. That's bonkers. <laughs> like, it's just unreal. Like, even Why would he do say, that? Right. And even if you say, well, you know, he's just writing a story. It was a, it was a novel. To think that you to have that kind of imagination even is just uh you know perplexing yeah. i went through everything he could have read even if he was the smartest kid in california in 1886 the only books that he could have read like that he could have read Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea that was out he could have read the antediluvian world if he got a copy like immediately after it was published and got to his little village which he makes no mention of that. He could have read Scribner's like adventurer magazines and things like this. None of that explains how he comes up with a theoretical periodic table that's more accurate, claims than a, a theory of the sun, which refutes our knowledge of what the sun really is, uh, a theory of the Ark of the Covenant, a theory of the Great Pyramid, uh, a theoretical physics that he explains that actually makes sense to people I've shown. And it's like, again, he never showed this book to anybody except his mom. And then he died at 33 years old and she published it and said, basically like, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm going to publish it. And you know, there it is. These, so people who do like channeling and this sort of thing, I know it it sounds pretty out there to to a lot of people but uh you know remote viewing is something that our government has researched not just our government but other governments as well used actually used soviet union as well yeah absolutely and so there's there's been a lot of interest in the idea that people can somehow uh in in different states access information that they wouldn't otherwise be able to and so there is something i think valid there to to at least look at and discuss and something i wanted to run by you was 
Uh, were you familiar with the, you probably are, but are you familiar with the book, the Adam and Eve story and um, the one that was um, found uh, on the, I think it's like CIA.gov. It was. Uh, yes. The story. Yeah. Yes. Thomas Chan or something. Yes. Like yes. yes. Thomas Chan. I have read that book. What do you think of that? Because you know, in in this light, it's almost as if uh, I mean, he doesn't talk about this Thomas Chan. I've been looking everywhere for. I've only found a, a little bit of information on him, uh, possibly, uh, and he's a, he's a real hard one to track down. So I don't know how he knew what he knew, other than his uh, academic background a little bit. But still, that wouldn't describe uh, exactly how he knew what he knew. Yeah. But I find it interesting because it sort of is in line with the things that you're talking about with these repeated cataclysms and sort of you know extinction events and then people coming back and trying to you know reestablish their civilization and whatnot and he sort of says that we're in for it again like it's coming and some people have argued that that is one of the reasons that the document was uh redacted and you know right. in interest of the um of the government and this sort of thing that, that yeah. they know and there's the rest you know everything well, is, is now yeah, yeah so. everything is classified. I mean, I mean, the level of contempt they have for the average person is 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 astounding. You know, you're a little kid that's not allowed to know anything. Or we'll tell you what you can know about cataclysms. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange book. Uh, I've read it. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. You know, well, I'm not pretty sure. I know that the government uses clairvoyance. <laughs> They've admitted it. You can read the CIA transcripts now of Operation or Project Stargate, which was yeah. a CIA operation that um, General, later General Stubblebine uh, was in charge of in the 70s, where you can see him giving targets to, like, for example, Lynn Buchanan, who's a real person. You can go interview him, and he'll tell you, like, I remote viewed alien encounters. I remote viewed you know, structures on other planets. I remote viewed the past. I remote viewed Soviet bases. I remote viewed a lot of things. And it's real because I was being paid by government contractors and trained, and they were using my intelligence in the real world during the Cold War, you know? And the Soviet Union was doing the same thing, you know? So it's, it's, they were actually more into it than, than the West. They put a lot more faith in, esoteric information you know? so it's kind of like an like a strange arms race like an esoteric arms race yeah um, so it would well, be about it psychic spies they made a whole documentary on it talking about all the cases where all sides were you know because it was like the soviet union did it first and somebody in the cia uh got word of that and they were like this is bs you know what are you talking about and they said no like these people are using this ability to discover military secrets and projects in the United States. We need to up our psychic game, go find people who can do this. And they did. They found Lynn Buchanan. They found Ingo Swan, who was the greatest remote viewer probably in history, who could remote view the rings of Saturn, I believe it was, before they... Or I'm sorry, the rings of... Uh, what was it? The rings around Jupiter, I think, before anybody knew about them. And and he was saying, I see a planet with rings. He's like, am I looking at Saturn? And they said, no, that's not your target. Just answer the question, what do you see? And later on, he found out he was being tasked with a planet that nobody on Earth knew had rings around it that 
10 years later, they did a telescope, you know, higher power telescope. They're like, oh my God, it actually was what he was looking at. Um, and then another guy, I think it was actually Ingo Swan, who, um, when he was being interviewed, one of the guys from the CIA said, uh, I got a target for you. You know, it's just a number AB 110 or something like that. You know, here's a piece of paper, go in the Faraday cage or the electromagnetic proof room and tell me what you see here. Now, he didn't know what the target was. They never did. But the CIA guy had given him the target of this, his, his own cabin in like outside of uh, Langley, Virginia. He had like a cabin in the woods. And he says, draw what you see. So the guy comes out. He draws not only the guy's cabin exactly as it appeared, but he draws an underground base a mile away. And he even lists the names of the projects going on at that base. And it was all true. And the FBI raided his house because they said there's nobody that could know that. How did you know the names of the projects and what levels of subterranean base? How did you know that? Who told you this? You're under arrest. He said, no, I was paid to look at a place. And he said, the more you try to hide it, the easier it is. Hmm. So that's how I saw it. He said it stood out like flashing and I saw it. Is it true though? Did I really find? They said, yes, that's why we're here. You know, we're either going to arrest you or you're hired. So this <laughs> is real. This is a real thing. It's just that it's not taught when you go to school. You're well, not much, not much is. Well, I mean, like you're, um, I, if I, you're a background, he said you are a, um, a professor. Yeah. Um, so uh, well, I'm. I, it's it's been very disappointing. I left and then came back, started teaching again, uh, and yeah. I I don't know how you have found it. I don't know if you're still teaching. If you are, I'm so sorry. I'm uh, no, to. I, I don't anymore. I teach. I teach a few classes online, and mm -hmm. I teach class. I teach students in a different country. No, and I don't. Well, how is myself. that? How is that? Is do you find that awesome. the students are different? Awesome. I mean, what they know versus in the in the states. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're very Just, different. I, I, very I, different. And you know, the last time I taught in the United States was, wow, I want to say, six years ago, and it had gotten so bad. Yeah. And now I'm curious to know what you think. I know this is not a Atlantis related, but oh yeah, we can talk about anything. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I'm just curious. What did you think? At the end, like, are you still teaching? I am. I am still okay. teaching. So you don't um, wanna, you don't I don't want. Oh, I can talk about anything. Okay. I, so I am. I am. I won't be in trouble. And even if I am, I don't care uh, because I'm. I'm trying to. Like, I look at it as a service. See, my background is a little different. Sure. I dropped out of school uh, when I was like 15 years old. Oh, it wow. was, yeah. So I ran away from home. Had all kinds of like misadventures and this sort of sure. thing. Um, but then coming back, uh, you know, I went to a community college and that really was something that was special to me. And it, you know, and then I went all the way through and, you know, good times, adventures, whatever. But I always thought what I want to do is go and teach at that community college level. You know, so very idealistic thinking. That's cool. You know, and so. I've, that. That, I, I, I've always, I've taught at two community colleges and it's nice. It's, yeah. And I, I feel like I want to make a difference. But the sad part is, is uh realizing that maybe you can't and that things are so far gone now yes That's not like it it is difficult so 
yeah, I still teach, but I've, I happen to find myself in a position at a particular little place that thinks what I do is, is cute and quirky. So that's, you know, it's good. So I can do what I can do. And, uh, I was surprised and now I don't know how that will go forever. And I don't really care because it's not really my bread and butter anyway. Um, but it's something, yeah, but I'll tell you, it's changed so much. The student body has changed so much. Uh, Obviously things like I teach in person. And so that's something that I really want to, you know, I'm hoping that maybe with the podcast and some other things I'm doing, um, I'll be able to move away from, from that at at all. Uh, only because, you know, it's, um, we live in, in weird times, and so I feel like it's oh, unsafe. It, it's, <laughs> you know, I haven't even thought about that because if you can believe it, you know, seven, yeah, seven years ago when I was at um, Loyola University, I remember getting to class and they had a sticker on the keyboard. It said, in the event of an active shooter, mm-hmm. press shift 11. And I just remember thinking, man, th- this is what the hell <laughs> right like, what right. the hell am i doing here i mean so there's that and then i you know i just i just got done saying how you know i'm glad i have this little place to teach and uh, now i'm going to shit on them and say this um i went on <laughs> they had a they had a con they had a little thing that said you know we're gonna we're gonna teach you what to do it's called, it was called stop the bleed and we had to learn about how to you know put a tourniquet on somebody in case there was a shooting and then they sent us away with a little yeah they sent us away with a little grab bag that was branded by the school and it had like a little like bag of snacks in it and a branded water bottle and literally a first aid kit that contained a piece of gauze and a little that's sick that's that's the new that's our generation's like ducking cover because yeah exactly exactly except this time it happened yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I, I so, live in a town where there was um, a school shooter in the high school that ended in mass casualties. So yeah. this is a well, real. Think about uh, Parkland. That's yeah. one city away from where I grew up as a kid. Oh. I'm from Pompano Beach, Florida. So I used to drive through Parkland all the time. I had friends that went to that school before in the 90s. And it's like, you know, these aren't like things that happen far away, you know. So, yeah, yeah. you're right. There, there is like the the immediate threat to your life but there's also just this feeling i get like you know i i looked at the students the last time i was in class and you know out of 30 27 or whatever that were in the class i know for a fact there were two that really liked to learn you know and love to learn you got lucky there didn't you yeah and i was happy i was like you know uh this one and this i was like you know i talked to them I still talk to them occasionally. Hey, how you doing? Everything okay? You still reading? You know, hope you got that job or got into the grad school you want. I hope my letter of recommendation. Yeah. You know, just keeping, just like I keep in touch. But that's a pretty horrible record. If like 28 people are sitting there and it's not like, I don't feel like I'm a boring person. You know, I try to make it as interesting as this podcast every time I get up there, but it's like, there's something about American students where I don't know if it's even their fault necessarily. Yeah. You know, it's just they've like been failed. They've, they've been failed. Been failed. There's a great way to put it. It's like they're just I look at them just like they just seem like workers getting on the bus. They're very compliant. Mind yes. Well, and they know how the game is played. So they're there to just basically 
you know, be compliant, do their thing, you know, whatever. But uh, there's that passion. No, there's not. And actually, they're they're kind of like ridiculed by their friends. Damn. Which to me is, it's funny because when I was growing up, my friends used to make fun of me for reading books, you know, and then I'd beat them up. Like, you got to do both. <laughs> yeah, right. Be able to play basketball and fight and be smart. I used to tell my friends, like, you don't have to be intelligent and like be a baby. Like, I'm going to hit you on the head with this damn book. Maybe you learn one, you know, and right. learn to read, you know, like, leave me alone. I, I, I can play <laughs> basketball. I can ball with you as well, but I'm going to also try to educate myself. And I think that's like a skill I learned from, you know, my grandpa, who was a, like my father, and he was a World War II commando resistance officer from France, but also a extremely intelligent person who read a book every two days for 65 years of his life, you know? So it's like, I never had that kind of, um, you know, like a lot of people kind of part of the reason I did, I don't really want to go back and, and, um, cause I got my master's degree when I was like, I think 23 and I, I took a break. I'm still on that break. Obviously you see in the, yeah. it says MA, I always put that <laughs> MA up there. Just cause I always feel like people only put PhD, you know, or <laughs> because there's, there's, because I can't legally let you're to refer to me as master, you know. I've oh, arrested. Well, that changes the whole dynamic of this conversation now, master. <laughs> I can. I have to call you doctor. Yeah, well, <laughs> Doctor Lynn. But what? What about us? What about the ones that didn't go all the way? Like, are we just? What are we? We're not students, but we're not doctors. So, but we can't say master. You know, yeah, so no. I just say a master and commander, you know, like there you go. British naval rank. I'm a master <laughs> commander. I'm not a captain, but they give me a little bit of authority. So I'm a master and commander. But, you know, it's like, I think, I think about it all the time. Like I just emailed a friend of mine, um, a guy I met at a party 15 years ago, a professor who he's in, uh, it's a Harvard historian. You know, and I'd always email him every year, like, I think I'm coming back. I think I'm coming back, David. You know, he's like, oh, you can only come back, Michael. You know, and the more I think about it, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. No. I would only do it for myself. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't do it because I want to jump back. Because I think by the time, if I went back next year, got my PhD five years from now, it's like, who even knows if they're going to have a person? You know? The whole system is just done. Like, there's no it's such done. thing as like anymore. It's so <laughs> sad. It is. It, it's so sad to me because that was the one thing. You know, I mentioned I, I had it pretty rough and I left home and whatnot. Sure. But before that, I mean, the thing that got me through everything was, well, I was brought up Catholic, and so I went to Catholic school. Me too. Um, so, you know, that, that has its own sort of, you know, uh, baggage, I suppose. I've also been homeless myself. Oh, okay. Well, Wow. So then, yeah. So that's that's an interesting thing to bond over. But it's it's one nonetheless. I think that that builds character. I know that sounds really awful. Like, no, it absolutely does. Person, no, but I mean, does. yeah. So my the value I place on education was it was huge because the way that I was raised in that sort of Catholic education and this sort of thing, and so I was it, that's been like sacred to me. And so to see over over time how it's just been absolutely destroyed in every way and in the hearts and minds of people too yeah, the students yeah. everybody the re yeah. the so-called research coming out is just the whole thing is just it's it's heartbreaking and so yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it's and really that's the end of a generation really yeah. because if you really think about it it's like we're not much more than what we are obviously like i'm not just reducing people to robots but like so much of what makes a culture function is like an enthusiasm to learn yeah new things and things about the past or different cultures or different languages or different just an enthusiasm that you know still existed when i was going to school my students have zero interest in anything other than how they're going to get a job perhaps after and not like because they're passionate i'll ask them well what do you want to do with your degree i don't know i just i'm here because like my parents are telling me i have to do this or whatever and they just they want a job they just they're looking at, at education now as, um, you know, skills training or means yeah. to an end. And I think we definitely need skills training, need training. But but, you know, what about what about the education? And it, you know, it's just uh, I hate that it's been mixed into both things. I think that two things can exist at once, and we can have sure. definitely trade schools. We need more people going to trade schooling. More, so many more, because half of the people, half more than half of the students that I have in my uh, freshman course, is, they have no business being there. And I don't mean because they're stupid by any means. It's they are, they have no interest. This isn't what they want to do. They're just checking it off a list. Yeah. And I, the one of the first times I realized that I was in big trouble, I started at, I you know, I, it was an intro to humanities course, and so I, we, I started in a linear fashion, and I started Uh-oh. talking about the Sumerians, and they look at me like. And I was wow. like, well, let's go to the Egyptians then because that's more pop culture, right? So how many of you are familiar with the Egyptians? You know, most people, I, maybe they were just not wanting to talk. So sure. I said, what about King Tut? Three students out of 30 raised their hand. And I thought, oh, you're just not a talkative bunch, huh? But no, when I got to pressing oh, them, they, no. they legitimately didn't know who King no. Tut. They don't know anything. That's the thing. They know, but they know who has, you know, 500 million views on TikTok. They know yes. That. And this is the thing. There's like two parallel cultures, even at the adult level that I've noticed. And it's like mm-hmm. 95% of people I encounter, they actually don't know anything. Yeah. They just know a lot about what's streaming through Twitter and TikTok and Facebook that month. You know? And I'm not saying like I'm some enlightened you know, person that lives in a crystal emerald palace and at the top of a goddamn hill i fall victim to this shit too you know like i have to consciously like disconnect myself and be like that's enough of this shit like twitter and fa- like, get a- get away from this. touch grass yeah get away <laughs> get out from there that shit yeah like go out and walk around go play with a dog or something because yeah. it'll kill you but the difference is you and i we at least our brains formed outside of that so it's like we can look at this and be like that's bad you know yeah. like we evolved outside of the complete bombarding immersion into this yeah weirdo bizarro crap that like the average person under 25 now just thinks is like oh this is normal you know yeah yeah and like I mean- why am i sitting here listening to this lady talk that's not an yeah. efficient use of my time i could be on tiktok you know, because it's, I think a lot of it too, people have, you know, written books on it. It's like, it's literally not their, it's like, in a, it's like a chemical imbalance where they're not yeah. getting satisfaction from things we used to get satisfaction from because 
they've already been flooding their system all day with clicks and likes and bing 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 like casino. Yeah. yeah right right and they're all on drugs and i don't yeah, mean they're like they're and i don't even i don't mean street drugs i mean no. they are all on pharmaceuticals all of tons of pharmaceuticals yeah. every student i have i swear mine too, mine too. i used to tell them i don't take anything but they're like because one student said to me you smoke cigarettes i said yes i do smoke cigarettes and i enjoy it and it helps me think what do you want yeah right cloth <laughs> clonazepam okay. uh, there's that fucking <laughs> Darvish said. Listen, you they're know, on the things. Yeah, I'm they're. Like, you know, I'm not saying like I'm not justifying like what I do. I understand it would be healthier if I didn't smoke a couple cigarettes. But I'm like, do you know what this shit is doing to you all the time? And can yeah. you get off of that? You know. Now, interestingly, uh, oh. they're all. This has been this past term. Um, well, the past year, actually, I found something completely different uh, than I had previously, which was the amount of, of mental health crises that I personally faced with the students. I had suicidal students. I had uh, students. Uh, it, it, the increase in the, the wow. number of yeah, people. Wow. It, it, and then pair that with they're also on all of these medications. And I'm, so we're failing these kids. These are not even children. These are. Well, it's also. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, uh, it's it's why I left the United States. I'm not in the United. I'm in a room in Mexico right now. No, how do you like it? I love it. I'm never coming back because <laughs> it's like, and I'm not saying, obviously, I'll come back. I'm probably going to come back. Gave up on the U.S. of A. No, I didn't give up. I gave up on a specific city that I was living in in the U.S. You know, that yeah. was turning into Mad Max. But it's like. There's a lot of those right now. Yeah. I, I'll take a <laughs> guess. You take a guess, but it's like, or throw a dart and you'll hit one. But the first thing I noticed here, and again, this is not a public service announcement from the tourist bureau of Mexico, <laughs> but the first thing I noticed was that's not normal here. Like Ooh. the average person here is not on that. And the average student here in very different you know it's yeah. not a universal thing it's a thing specific at least from my experience to certain parts of the u.s you know wow. regardless of race demographic it's just like certain areas of the u.s like big cities it seems to be the worst you wow know? like in chicago every single student i had was a little bit off compared to the yeah. year before and the mm -hmm. year before and yeah, towards the end, I mean, I had to call the cops on a student. No, I believe I, yeah. I've had students threaten me. I've had students. Um, I remember uh, a gay student kept like hitting on me. And I'm like, look, I'm not gay. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm very flattered. And it's just like, no, I really like you. I'm, I'm like, do you understand? How I'm your teacher. This is inappropriate. Yeah, like, power like, dynamic. Like, you probably uh, porn where that happened so right right and cool now and it, you think it's like so there's just no there's no that's, innocence that's a really anymore. good point no that's a very good point oh well and and that um i've noticed two very weird paradoxical sort of confidence okay no i'm just kidding <laughs> no I, i'm done i've been talking about atlanta too much i told somebody this is one of the last interviews i'm doing this summer so be very 
be very, you know, happy to know you got me because uh, I oh, great. I'll go crazy because I'm a normal person. You know, I don't yeah. sit around all day. You know, just a few hours a week. Right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's why I I wanted to really kind of I'm I'm glad that we're talking about uh, those things because it's not every day that you know you find somebody who has teaching experience but also is interested in uh, looking at these alternative sort of subjects and. I find that really refreshing and exciting because, uh, you know, I've come across so many naysayers uh, in the, in, oh gosh, like you're probably familiar with that though. I mean, so your background is in history per se, it's specifically history. So, you know, I felt like uh, I, I battled imposter syndrome uh, for just various reasons, you know, probably given my background and, you know, going in through like a more elitist pathway and dealing with people who didn't share that background, it kind of gave imposter syndrome. But then when I found out that, you know, I had an interest in some of these other areas like in Atlantis or this sort of thing and uh, thinking that it was okay to even just talk about it for fun, like just I never suggested to uh, professors or colleagues later or anything that, you know, this was all there was. It would just Mm -hmm. be like a discussion. And the the I was like typhoid Mary when that stuff came up, like, yeah. like Graham Hancock or, you know, naming yeah. these like authors. I'll never forget being in my intro to archaeology class. It was like archaeology 101. And um, they had on the board all of these names of different uh, authors. And it was like, OK, you get to pick one and then your job is going to be to debunk them. And I'm like, I didn't even learned anything about best or I'm like, wow, how do we even know? <laughs> like, you know, maybe it's- get more. It's 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 why I included that chapter in the book, chapter three, I believe. It's all about the flawed arguments that debunkers yeah. use. And what you realize is that they're just ideologues. They're not applying the scientific method themselves. They're holding on to their career. It's almost like they're in a little guild. They're like they don't want to give up guild. the trade secrets. And then that way, you know, right. they keep their power and they maintain their power. And that's yeah. and I mean, it's like power over what? I always tell like power in it. What? Like uh, ego, ego, it's ego, I believe. I mean, yeah. and maybe some of them, go ahead, sorry. No, I'm I'm sorry. It's just the, the presumption is that, well, it's very simple. It, it's like, so therefore nothing new can be added. So then by extension, you know everything. But then if you Before ask I... them, like, how were the pyramids built? They don't have an answer so it's like right there you gotta but they won't even well yes we all know it's like okay use a ai algorithm and literally build show me a video of how they you can't do it you know why because you don't know how they were built now edgar casey has an explanation frederick oliver has an explanation but those are fake sources but their explanation makes a lot of sense actually you know and so I find it just very funny that, like you said, like this, uh, and not just in this field, like in any academic field, like within uh, conventional, like World War II history groups, you know, there's people where like, I could show somebody more evidence that Hitler lived in Argentina until the 60s than the fact that he died in the bunker. And I'll go debate anybody on live television about that for as long as they want. And I'll prove that there's more evidence of what I'm saying from the document record, not from Reddit, you know, from the FBI's own file that they just declassified 10 years ago. Yeah. But you show that to a guy 
who spent 50 years teaching students at the end of his World War II class. Hitler was set on fire and that Martin Borman was killed in the rubble. And all. Well, you have to update your sources sometimes. But like you said, they don't like that. They don't like that. Just like now that the government is tepidly saying like, oh yeah, by the way, we've been visited for 80 years plus by extraterrestrials and yeah, we've got the craft and yeah, anyway, moving on. Like, isn't that something? What? But I want to see the look on these people's faces that are still like, you believe actually. And then it's like CNN headline. It's like, well, now that they said it, you still going to say that to me? You know what I mean? It's like, there comes a point where I'm not asking for an apology, but I'm asking you to just shut the F up now, you know, on certain things. Like, that's enough of that. Okay, like you've been making fun of people that believe but just see evidence, like millions of people of the possibility of extraterrestrials or strange objects in the sky that nobody can explain, you know? Can you just, you're done now, okay? Like that's enough of that. And it's unfortunate that we need the official stamp of Pentagon A-tip officially announces, because you know it's all bullshit if they're announcing it, but it's like at least it's, tangentially pushing the conversation into like, yeah. hey, now actually it's not just a bunch of people meeting in a cabin in Sedona, you know, and talking about this, you know, with a name tag. It's actually reputable, well, well, propagandist and people that lie about living, but <laughs> yeah. the people you think are reputable. Yeah, know, like yeah. now are you listening since the right. evening news has said it, but... Saturday news. Right. So it, it's really, I find it... It's, exciting interesting and really as the kids say sus you know that they're coming out with this information i'm like you know no the narrative is completely suspect but the fact that for certain proportion of the human race they need to hear it from that yeah that's a victory i understand everything else you're saying that that's a victory that that's a supreme victory yeah that you could even talk about whether it's real or not that's like what we were saying earlier about not being able to talk about certain things in, in let's say, like the 90s or what have you, yeah. even earlier, whenever, or any time before 2012. It's like Absolutely. there's more and more, I don't want to say acceptance, but uh, more and more people are listening to alternative viewpoints. And perhaps it's because we have all collectively been like, you know, screw the authority figures. They're, they're, they're fallible. Maybe we need to look in different directions, which clearly is also a danger because it leaves the door wide open for cult of personality types and this sort of thing mm. um but at the same sense it i, I think it's liberating you yeah. know I, I think it's a good thing to be able to explore these different topics and uh you know so the answer yeah and i think the answer to uh you know all this free speech and you know p- people don't like to hear what you have to say you know is is not the opposite of saying well now we can't speak it's 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 yeah. being able to say things and add to the conversation and yeah. you know and, and with these students too i mean back Back no, to complaining please. about these damn kids. No, but like, yeah, I'm I'm gone. I'm I'm checked out fully, hundred percent. So. Oh man. Oh well, that's. But I I'm so fascinated to hear what you have to say because I haven't talked about this with anybody, you know, because I don't have I don't hang out with those people anymore. Yeah, so it's it's I don't I have it's to like to to hear from an actual other professor because I have not talked to another professor 
in many years. It's just so bad. It's so bad. And the level of disconnect that at least in my institution uh, that is there with the other faculty, they are just thinking it's business as usual. And that's another thing we worry about is the complacency or they just complain about the kids. They just complain. I I never did. And, you know, the thing is, and I don't look at what we're doing as complaining, because like you said correctly, the system failed them. Yeah. They're good. Oh, they're good kids. They're good. They mean well. And yeah. they, they want to do well. They, they're, right. they're too subservient that they want to make their parents happy and society happy and be the good person. And this is the pathway they've been told will get them to that. And so I know. we failed them as a society. We did. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate because I don't know when exactly that became like the default thing. But I mean, yeah. think about all the people that came before us lived really successful lives and like were apprentices or just did something else or yeah worked with their parents or played just did anything like it, it wasn't always the case that like even though you hate it you gotta go to four-year college like that's a that's a kind of lie that has really bothered me because i used well, to do what you did i would look at the class and i'd be like look what are you doing here like, I'm not mad at you, but obviously you don't want to be here. You hate this shit. What are you doing here? And, oh, it's my dad, or I don't want to be the first one in my family who didn't go to college. And I'm like, so you're going to spend all this money. You're not doing well, so you can't go to grad school. So it's just a dead end. And I said, can I tell you something? I said, when I got this job, they didn't interview me. And they never asked for my transcript. Yeah, I could have been a, a guy that worked at a fucking hot dog. I know, right? They don't, they all the things, they don't give a shit. They don't care about your GPA. They don't care about they your literally hired me. That's for the record. I'll put that on the record. They literally hired me at Loyola, an elite university that costs $50,000 a year to go to. Uh, they never asked me for my transcripts or my resume. I sent an email. I'm not lying. I do have a. Yeah master's degree i have letters of recommendation i never had to show them because they just plugged me into a class two days before the semester started wow i believe it it's not i totally what are you i get it yeah who's running the show you know Uh, the the administration the the new elite class yeah 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 it's a it's a it's a joke and you know it is i one day told the students how the whole game works. I know? do. I do all the time. I tell them stuff. I tell they them stuff know. I'm not supposed to. They gotta no, look. they do. Look, yeah, right. it's a, they're, the, it's their system that they're in. in. So if they well, want to I tell them straight up, this is how much they pay adjunct professors. Okay. This is how much uh, time your, uh, your other faculty take to uh prepare your tests or grade your papers so like don't worry about it being absolutely perfect just answer the damn question and balance your time because they would freak out over well what if my look the chances are a ta is going to grade that right hung over you know like yeah it was a regular people oh my gosh yeah no it's it's bad and let me tell you it's it's so bad i mean i could go on like a whole whole show on just how much it's terrible that's but like one. that's academic a whole other show academics maybe i'll that'll be my show because we'll do that yeah, <laughs> i'll have one i have one story i have to share because you sort of ask like well how bad is it now and you know, 
I have uh, this is this will take the cake. Okay, so this past term, spring term, I had. So we're talking about people who maybe shouldn't necessarily be in school. And I I know it sounds really elitist when I say that. I do not mean that at all. I mean when you go and look for an, a, a job opportunity to say you know answer phones. There's no reason you need a bachelor's degree to do that. This is gatekeeping at its finest. It's making a lot of people not able to have, you know, a job to simply provide for themselves and their family because you need an expensive bachelor's degree in bullshit, basically, to be able to say that you can operate um, windows and it's 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 all just very entry. So aside from that, um, you know, where I am, I'm at at a state institution, and so it's like open. You know, like I said, community college. So it's like pretty much anybody can come in. Uh, they, sure. they don't stay necessarily, but usually what happens is since it's open enrollment, um, you just have to take a certain amount of, you know, the placement exams and that sort of thing. Um, so right. we get a lot of students in the fall. Everyone's like, yes, I'm here in college. And then they inevitably just fall off because it's more than yeah. they bargained for. Well, in that soup of potential students that I had um, this past term, I had somebody who um, had... Uh, you know, a special sort of um, uh, thing in their file that said I had to give them extra time on tests and that they had some something wrong with them in terms of their um, learning abilities. And so as the professor, I'm not allowed to know the full details of that for, you know, privacy purposes. And right. so, but they had some issues. Well, that's fine. I have tons of students that way that come in. This particular student, uh, well, when, when the student showed up, I realized the extent of their issue was something that was um, like untenable. It, it, it just, it was, it was unreal. It was visible. Wow. And then what I found was that the student was living in uh, a group home. Uh, they were suicidal. Wow. They had tons of different abilities, inabilities. They, they had the reading comprehension was probably that of a second grader. Right. Um, and, it got so bad. Now I was like, all right, well, you know, let me, let me try. I'm always just, you know, way more optimistic. And so I I spent some time with the student just trying to get a gauge of like, how can I even, how can I even, you know? Mm -hmm. And what I found was this particular student said that they liked uh, baking and that that was something that they were good at. And I thought, okay, well, um, I said, what do you want to do with this degree? And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm I'm here because the state's paying for it because this person was on, you know, public assistance, living in this group home, they had all these issues. And so the mm-hmm. thing was, well, we're going to put them in college and make them have a better life and whatnot. Well, great. Yeah. Um, as they, I didn't understand why they wouldn't think to put this student in a, like a culinary arts program to teach them how to pursue the baking aspect of something, because that would have at least been something that they could feasibly do something sure. that could have been trained something that when they come out of that would have led to a marketable skill and a way to to actually work in the community you know to, to get out there but that's not what they were doing in fact they wanted me to try to give a lot more breaks than needed now i'm sitting in here talking about consciousness and i have like a graph on my powerpoint that talked about you know motivational theory and like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and it's really ghosty and I'm like, this student, I know. And I'm like, there's, you know, this student should not be in my class. What are you, why would the government put this person in my class? And then uh, at one point in the term, they had called me and said, um, hey, you know, I, I feel like I might be a threat to myself and others. And uh, so I'm going to come into class and I'll probably just uh, wear my headphones and whatever. And I'm like, 
how about no? How about no. you? You know, no thanks. So, you know, I contact the administration and I'm like, hey, this student's coming in. They said they're going to be a harm to themselves and others. And they said, well, can you take them to the counselor's office? And I'm like, sure. Why not? So I'm like, you're not been counted. Yeah, this is this is the thing. This is this a is... dual role. You know, yes. it's like you're the yes. psychologist. You're oh, my gosh. Parent, you're their right. Friend, you're their teacher. You're their coach. It's like, no. Yeah, I didn't send him for all that. I'm a historian, and I'm yes. here to teach you about Plato, okay? Right, right. Don't come up to me after class talking about what happens if I got a girl pregnant. I don't want to know. I don't know. Oh, well, I've gotten so much of that. No. Don't ask I, me. We okay? sound like total assholes. But listen, no. you have to know that when you're you in this know. situation, this is not just like a student that This is one of those feel-good things where you're just going to be a... It's like dead poet society. Like, these... Huh. Yeah. These kids are a mess, and they're deep. Oh, it's just, uh, yeah, that's a <laughs> like captain. Yeah. Oh, my captain! I'm yeah, going in here on Adderall, and yeah, yeah, captain. Oh, I you know what though? I did have a my god. If I told you the story, I gotta go actually in uh yeah. five minutes. But okay. if you want to talk about this shit one day, I have a story for you. I've got an old captain, my captain. <laughs> awesome. My You're captain. coming back on this. You have an. I had a I had a career defining moment, you could say that that uh, perhaps I should not talk about if I ever want to enter academia again. But I think I burned the boats. I think I'm out. I'm in the jungles here with Cortez. We can't go back. So <laughs> maybe maybe I will tell you. But you know, I I think it's great to hear it. You know, from somebody else because I do think think sometimes. You know. Um, because I live now off book sales and uh, online teaching and other, I work for Publishers Weekly. I'm a book reviewer, you know. So I just tried to spread it out, do different things with my skill set. But I always wondered, like, I have friends. Oh, I just got a tenure track position, and I'm like, man, what is that like? What is that like? Telling your soul and you know, doing their like, well, it's 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 good, and I've got a community. Like, no, no, no. I know the I committee stuff. No, it just oh, seems really. so fake to me, you know. Like, I would, but the funny thing is, I still probably I'll go back and get that goddamn PhD from Harvard <laughs> just so I can have just spite him. Just do it, Harvard, and then I'll move to the beach. Do it, the do hot dogs. I swear to God, and I'll tell him that straight up when I get it. Look, do it. I just want this. To learn, because I love to learn. That's what it's my track record. I don't give a shit about teaching. I just want to have a goddamn Harvard PhD, and then go sit on the beach and be like, "Yeah, I went to Harvard." Guess what? I don't do a goddamn thing with it. That sounds like the best plan ever. And you know what? You are you are still a professor. You're a teacher. You're an educator. And the thing is, and you are master captain. Oh my captain! Not captain, master in command. (laughs) You're the master in command. So the the, the thing, yeah. So the thing is, you uh, you have students, students who actually want to hear what you have to say. They want to read your book. There you go. There you go. So you know, just like Jordan Peterson, love him, hate him. He was correct when he said, you know, it was an epiphany when I realized why am I teaching to ten students, right, in a room in Canada when I can talk to millions of people. And you know what? I think. That's what we're all doing in our own way. I so, think so. 
And I'm so glad you're doing it. And I hope you write more books because you have so much to teach. And there are plenty of people, contrary to what the media wants to say or how it may look in, in, you know, the universities and these kids. There are hungry, hungry people out there who are hungry for knowledge. And you have. I know. And, And, you know, it's the nicest thing. I'll end on that. It's the nicest thing to have written a book that I never in my wildest dreams thought I would even have the wherewithal to write, let alone sell. And today, to my great surprise, we passed 800 copies sold. And I finished the translation in Spanish, and it'll be available as well tomorrow. You know, and I get letters all the time from people that say, you know, I never really thought about this, but I really learned a lot. And thank you for being just reasonable. Yeah. Talking about things that to me really sound crazy, but I really appreciate how you treat them fairly. You know, that to me is all we can both do. Yeah. That's what that's what I would have to say about your book, too. So the book is Visions of Atlantis. So, Michael, it's been so great having you on and you have to come back because there's just so much to talk about aside from Atlantis. But if people want to get a hold of you or learn more about you, where can they go? They can go to my website, uh, Michael Islam, one word, last name, one word, altogether, uh, dot com. Um, and you can find the book there, link there, or um, it's also available on Amazon. Just type in Visions of Atlantis. Uh, don't be fooled, though. There is a pirate metal band named Visions of Atlantis. That's very cool, actually. Oh, sweet. And I sent them a copy. <laughs> I think of the long time ago. Uh, All right. But I'm not the pirate metal uh, band, but... Just type my name into Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Yeah, that's right. And it's available um, in audiobook as well. You yes, that's how I listened to it. It was fantastic. Very creatively done, I, I must say, too. It was very engaging. Loved it. Yeah, I found a great narrator. Yeah. Talk to him still. He's a funny guy. Oh, Chris. he was great. He's a born again Christian, actually, who changed his religious beliefs after reading this book. He's saying, like, Oh, I my gosh. Thought about Jesus in the context of Atlantis. And I was like, well, now you did. Wow. So there you go. There you go. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Come back. (laughs) Come back. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Now I've got to ironically teach. So Uh, good good time. Teach. All right. Well, hang in there. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much, Heather, for having me on the show. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. You as well.